Hello, Strong Tower Bible Church family. My name is Aubrey Smith. Hey, I'm going to spend a few minutes uh, speaking on the first of the seven last sayings of Christ on the cross. I'm going to start this process by reading a portion of scripture from Luke, the 23rd chapter, the 34th verse. And it says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think many of us can relate to the realities that when we have catastrophic events in our lives, that it forces us to observe uh, some of the highs, some of the lows, some of our successes, some of our failures. I believe Jesus finds himself in this exact same position now, a catastrophic event. That is because death is imminent. He's hanging on a cross between two thieves. He's going to need strength, energy, and encouragement to fulfill his calling. I would like to believe that Jesus was able to find courage by thinking on events and activities that transpired in his life, such as when his father said, let us make man in our own image. I think back to when he was 12 years old at the festival of the Passover, when his parents left and three days later they regained him. Love to think on, uh, hear that conversation between him and Mary. No doubt Jesus can find some real encouragement when he thinks about, think about uh, his early ministry at 30 years old, when he was baptized by John, coming up from the water when the Spirit of the Lord descended on him in the form of a dog. And he could hear his father's voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. I think Jesus can think back on and reflect on calling his apostles, knowing that there were going to be men that would uh, continue the ministry after he was gone. I pray that he find consolation, some encouragement uh, when he think on the, the impact he made on lives, the number of pe people he uh, healed from sickness and disease, feeding the hungry, 5,000 on one occasion with two fish and five loaves of bread. How about raising individuals from the dead, especially his friend Lazarus? I think he found will find some strength and energy in knowing that as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, an angel from heaven strengthened him. Now as he sit or hang on this cross in silence, it was now time for him to speak. And then Jesus said, Father, and please note the comma immediately after the Father. I see the comma, but I hear the pause. And that pausing gives opportunity for conversation as well as prayer. So when he called on his Father, I believe he immediately went into uh, giving admiration for his Father, the Almighty God the most powerful one, the everlasting Father, the great I am, the source of my strength. He began to say, Father, my protector, Father, who is my provider. Father, you are the one who have sent me even to this earth. Now, I believe Jesus truly had his Father's attention at this point, and he wanted to make his request or let his request be made known unto his Father. And what did he ask for? <laughs> he asked for forgiveness. No, not for himself. He asked for forgiveness for his persecutors. Forgive them, he said. He said, Father, forgive them. Jesus is now making intercession for his persecutors. In the midst of his pain and suffering, why would he want them to be forgiven? I believe Jesus is showing us that he's practicing exactly what he was preaching. If you look at Luke, the sixth chapter, the 27th and the 28th verse, it tells us to love our enemies, do good to those that hate us. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus knew exactly why he had come to earth. He knew exactly what was expected of him. 
And he wasn't going to allow a little pain and suffering to derail what he was supposed to be doing. But look at Jesus. He didn't just call upon the Father and ask for forgiveness. He now wanted to qualify or justify why he believed they should be forgiven. For he goes on to say, for they know not what they do. (laughs) I laugh at this part here because I can't help but think, but like any compassionate and overly protective father uh, who would defend his his son or his children uh, in a court of law or in a court of uh, public opinion, it doesn't matter. But I I envision God saying, hmm, are you sure they don't know what they're they're doing, Jesus? (laughs) They knew what they were doing when they arrested you in the garden. They treated, they knew what they were doing when they treated you like a yo-yo, when they sent you back and forth between Pilate and Herod. They truly knew what they were doing when they stood you before a spineless judge, Pilate, and an unjust jury, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. They definitely knew what they were doing when they sentenced you to death from crucifixion. Oh, but Jesus, like any good son, said, Father, I agree with you. However, what I meant by that is they don't know what they're doing because they don't realize there's a way that seems right unto man. But the end thereof is destruction. Father, they have a zeal of God, but it's not according to righteousness. I'm saying they don't understand that I am the Messiah. They don't know when they demonstrate hate toward me, they're actually saying they hate you. Father, I was saying they don't understand or they don't know that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil or are evil. They don't understand that I came into the world not to condemn the world, but the world through me might be saved. I'm so glad that Jesus knew he was the atoning sacrifice for sin for the entire world. Now Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father. He makes intercession for me, all because he was more concerned about saving my life than his own life. So now, when I'm not thinking right, or when I'm not talking right, or when I'm moving in anger and fear and frustration and worry, I can cry out, Father, forgive me. And the Father, who is faithful and just to forgive me, he will cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for the example in which you said. God bless you. I'm Gerald Lewis. On this Good Friday, I have been reflecting on a scene described in Luke 23, verse 43, when Jesus, while on the cross, answered a plea from a sinner by saying, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This one-sentence response that Jesus gave the thief hanging on the cross next to him reminded me of this refrain from an old hymn. It goes, On the cross, on the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burdens of my heart rolled away. That refrain was going to be the reality of one of the two men hanging on the cross. Both men had made bad life decisions. Years before, they had made a conscious choice to enter a life of crime, and the nature of their crimes had escalated to the point that they drew the attention of the Roman soldiers. And they were eventually caught, tried, and sentenced to death by crucifixion. This was their reality on this day. Then they heard that a third person would be joining them, a man named Jesus. Was this the same Jesus of Nazareth, the so-called prophet, who was healing the sick and casting out demons and challenging the Pharisees? The same man some called the Messiah? 
Now as the crucifixion drained their lives away, there was this man, Jesus, hanging across between them. As the crowd chanted and talked at Jesus, each man was now faced with a decision to continue in a life of bitterness, hate, and anger. That is what one thief chose to do. In the depths of extreme punishment, his attitude was still one of disdain, and he joined with the crowd to hurl abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But in contrast, the other man made a dramatically different decision. He was finally ready to concede and make a start stand for what was right. He confronted the bully. Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we have conceived what we deserve for our sins. This man is a nothing wrong. Then in total submission, he embraced the one thing he could not steal or acquire under his own power, the one thing he could not earn or even hope to repay, the mercy and grace of God. He then focused on Jesus and asked, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This was a crossroads of his life when he finally made the decision of his life, he believed. Jesus' response surrounded him with a sense of peace he had never had before. That statement was all he could think about for the next few hours until it was his turn to die. As a Roman soldier came and broke his own legs, he gasped for his last breath. The only thing he could think of, the only thing he was sure of, is today he was going to be with him in paradise. Will you be with Jesus in paradise? If your life ended before the sunrise tomorrow, would you be with him? There is no better time than today, Good Friday, to be welcomed by the Savior. Hello, I'm Paul Revere, and I'm reading from John 19, 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. You know, the impression uh, I received uh, reading this, studying this, is that it was like an older brother who was turning over the responsibility of their mother to the younger brother. And in very much, we believe this is the relationship that Jesus and John had. John was the youngest disciple, and he was the closest disciple to Jesus. Uh, we know that uh, the scriptures were written by people inspired by the Holy Spirit. But uh, the fact remains that John was writing this gospel 30 years after all of these events happened. He had outlived all of his contemporaries. Uh, he's now separated on the Isle of Patmos and he's living and working and writing to a whole new generation of believers. He was found faithful. Whatever happens now to any of us, will we be found faithful? Just like John who was faithful to his master and his master's commands. May God bless the reading of his word. Hello, Strong Tower family and friends. My name is Sherman Smith, and I have the privilege of being an elder at Strong Tower Bible Church. 
welcome to our Good Friday service. The scripture that I like to share with you today comes out of Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, as well as this verse can be found in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. And it reads, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthian, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I think about that verse now, I think about it, it takes me back to the very first time that I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friend Ken Hutcherson had just suffered a serious knee injury. They had taken him into the locker room, x-rayed his knee, and told him that it looked like his knee had exploded and let him know that his career was over with. The word came back down on the field to the rest of the team, and man, everybody wanted to rush in the locker room after the game and be a comfort to Hutch the way he had been a comfort and a friend to us. And I realized at this time that now that God had set up a spiritual appointment for Hutch and I. Because as I walked up to him, he had a smile on his face. And he was letting me know how excited he was to see what God had planned for his life. And I know Hutch could see that look of confusion and bewilderment on my face. Like, what? You're excited about God during this time? And that's when he said, you see, Sherman, I'm a Christian and nothing happens in my life that's not filtered through God's hands first. And then that's when he shared the gospel with me. He said, you see, Sherman, God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ for the purpose of dying in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. And that you and I can be declared not guilty in the court of heaven because the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to those who believe. After I accepted Christ, Reading Matthew 27, 46, it became more real to me because as Hutch gave me the gospel, he was telling me that God came to earth in the person of Christ to die in my place to pay the penalty for my sins. And as our Lord and Savior was on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? It was that point in history when God, Jesus Christ, was dying in my place, paying the penalty for my sins. It was my sins that caused God to turn his back on his son and to disassociate with him and to say, I cannot be associated with sin. And so that was the pain that Jesus felt, the pain of separation, the pain of broken fellowship between he and the father, because my sins and the sins of the world were placed on Jesus Christ. But then as I think about what the message of the gospel that Hutch gave me, but he also talked about why Christ came. He said he came, he died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins that we can be declared not guilty in the court of heaven because the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to those who believe. That I had a chance I could complete the transaction. Way back in history, my sins were already placed on Christ, but at the moment that I accepted Christ, the transaction was completed to begin another transaction. Because my sins were placed on Christ. It was this, I never sinned. And then the righteousness of Christ was credited to me when I believed. And it, it was as if I always obeyed. And so through that transaction, I now have a personal relationship with the Father through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Christ died in my place so that I could have that relationship with Christ. That's why it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then he said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, who you have sent. So this relationship began because God said in his word, he said, to those who received him, to them he gave a right to become the children of God, as many as believed in his name. And so now I have that new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then that's when Hutch talked to me about 
Even though now that Christ died for my sins, and I know why he died, so that I could have this relationship, then now I understand he talked about the identity, my new identity in Christ, this new beginning. I have been born again. So I now have my new identity. I'm now living under new management. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, I got new resources. God has given me the ability to live a victorious Christian life here on earth. God has given me new power through the Holy Spirit, the presence of God dwelling within me. God has given me new teachers. It's no longer law that motivates me, but it's God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love that motivates me. God has given me a new attitude, a new mindset. I set my heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And instead of, and so with this new mindset, I think differently because I'm in Christ. And now because of that new mindset, I recognize I have a new purpose that I'm God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for me to walk in. Oh man, I thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thank my Lord and Savior when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thank God for that love that he demonstrated so that now we can come and have a relationship with him and be all that he created and redeemed us to be. You know, those of you that are baby boomers, I think you'll probably recognize this group. There was a group back in the day called the Delphonics. And they had a song and they had an album and it was entitled, Tell Me This Is A Dream Somebody. A few nights ago, I was sitting here at my desk and I was thinking about what was going on, what's going on in our world right now. And I was saying, tell me this is a dream somebody. Well, I know right now this is not a dream. God is letting us know as a church and as a people, this is not a dream. This is a wake-up call. And like that commercial where the guy used to be with a Verizon and he's now with Sprint and he would say, can you hear me now? And I believe God is saying to the church and to the world, can you hear me now? That God has taken us through this divine disruption. And when we wake up, this wake-up call that he's given us, man, when we come out of this, we need to come out of this differently than when we went in. That, man, we cannot be the same. I agree with what Pastor said in the sermon on Sunday. If this doesn't shake you up, if this doesn't change you, then you better check yourself before you wreck yourself because you may not be in Christ. Can you hear me now? Now it's time for the church, man. Time for us to be the salt and the light that God called us to be. Time for us to be the difference makers that we're supposed to be. I want to show you something. This here is a a trophy. It's a replica of the Vince Lombardi trophy. And this trophy is awarded to every team that wins the Super Bowl. And every team that wins the Super Bowl has this trophy on display. They have it on display in their trophy case, in their team uh, facility, at their headquarters, in their stadium. And the purpose of this trophy, as good as this trophy looks, it is not for you to admire the trophy and, and gloat over the trophy. But the purpose of the trophy is to give recognition to the owner of the trophy. It is to let you know the accomplishments of the one who owns the trophy. It is to give honor and respect to the owner of the trophy. Oh, I think you know where I'm going. The purpose of a trophy is to bring glory and honor to the owner. When you and I accepted Jesus Christ, we became trophies of God's grace. And God has placed us on display, display where, wherever he has put us. And when people look at our lives, they should look to our God and Savior and say, what a great God they serve. What a great God she serves. And the difference that that God that they serve makes in the lives of the people that they're involved with. So, man, we're God's trophies put on display in this world to bring God honor and glory. 
We've been bought with a price, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that you receive from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your spirit, which are his. Man, everyone wants to get what they paid for. As our Lord and Savior was nailed to the cross and he screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God wants to get what he paid for. He paid the price with his blood so that we can have a relationship with him. You and I want to get what we paid for. And so now the, the question that I have for you, and the question that I ask myself also, is Christ getting what he paid for? During a time like this, let's make sure that Christ is getting what he paid for. And then we give honor, all honor, praise, and glory to our God and Savior so that when we come out of this storm, we'll be the difference makers that he died on the cross for us to be. God bless you. Hello, my brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is Elder Joe. And I'm here to discuss the fifth saying of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. The fifth saying of Jesus from the cross is, I thirst. This comes from the book of John, chapter 19, verse 28. And it goes as follows. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. This saying of Christ occurred around the eighth hour of the day, which would be 2 p.m. our time. At the time Jesus said, I thirst, he had been hanging on the cross for about five hours, with approximately one hour left before his death. Indulge me to make three brief points about Jesus saying, I thirst. First, from the physical perspective of Jesus as 100% man. Second, from the spiritual perspective of Jesus as 100% God. And third, from the provisional perspective of Jesus as Redeemer. As 100% man, Jesus had all human senses, including the sense of thirst. He was able to experience these senses, yet not sin. Hebrews 4.15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. When one considers the events leading up to the saying, I thirst, a better understanding of what Jesus' experience becomes clear. Remember, Jesus Christ was scourged shortly before the crucifixion. It was brutal and it was bloody. This scourging whip caused massive hemorrhage or bleeding as it tore into the skin of Jesus. Large blood loss rendered Jesus weak and dehydrated. After Jesus made it to Calvary, he was further injured with the spikes driven through his wrist and feet. As he continued to bleed, he became progressively more dehydrated. After approximately five hours of hanging on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. As 100% God, 
Jesus demonstrates his love and therefore his thirst for us. Figuratively speaking, to thirst for something or someone is to desire the thing or the person strongly. Consider the following verses. Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He goes on to say in John 15, 9, As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus endured suffering, mental anguish, humiliation, and temporary separation from his Father because of his love and therefore his thirst for us. Finally, from a provisional perspective, Jesus quenches our figurative thirst by giving living water for our souls. We see in John 4.13 the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, well who came uh, to draw physical water. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Back then, Jewish people avoided interacting with Samaritans. But here's what Jesus said to her. If you knew the gift of God and who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus goes on to say, whoever drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus said on the cross, I thirst, has both physical and spiritual implications for him, but ultimately would have provisional and spiritual implications for mankind. God bless. The sixth word comes from John chapter 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In the original Greek, that phrase that we render in English, it is finished, is a single word, tetelestai. One word. But it's a word so richly packed with meaning that I don't think any single word uttered ever changed the history of the world and the destiny of mankind so much. I think if we had all of eternity, we would still be trying to unpack everything that tetelestai means. It is finished. Tetelestai. It would have been understood very well by Jesus' first century audience. It was a word uh, that was used commonly. It was a word that was used by merchants who um, uh, would have, when a sale was made or a debt was finally paid, they would write across the receipt, Tetelestai. It was a word that was used by artists. If they were sculpting or, or, or painting or making a piece of art, and they got to that point where they could step back and see that there's no other corrections needed. The work was perfected. 
It's a tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. Here's a word that might have been used by prisoners or judges or jailers uh, to, uh, uh, to, to indicate that that was paid. When a prisoner was uh, incarcerated, his indictment would have been posted above his place of confinement. And so upon release, the judge or the jailer would write to Telestai, paid in full. So that walking around, if somebody thought that man probably shouldn't be released, he could show evidence that his debt was paid. When Jesus shouted out, Tistalistai, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He wasn't conquered. He wasn't giving up. The Tetelestai of Jesus, it, his, it is finished, was packed with meaning. It wasn't only his, his earthly life that was finished. It wasn't only that the suffering was over. It wasn't only that the, the, the dying was finished, or even that the payment of sin and the redemption of the world was done. His entire work was finished. It was almost as if he said, I came to glorify God the Father. I came to seek and save the lost. I came to bind up the brokenhearted. I, I came to proclaim freedom for prisoners, to set the oppressed free, to forgive sins, to break every chain, to pay every debt in full. Yes, Jesus laid down his life, but he laid it down with a victory shout, not a whimper. To Telestai, it is finished. The battle's over. The work is done. My people are redeemed. They're no longer slaves and prisoners. That task, that awesome assignment that existed from the foundation of the world, that assignment that was mine since Adam fell, the restoration of my father's masterpieces, it's finished. I have a distant cousin who lives in Malta, small, small country in the Mediterranean, who is a tremendous artist in his own respect, but has had the privilege on a couple of occasions of having the Vatican in Rome send masterpieces to him, 500-year-old pieces of art that have endured years and years of grime and dirt, and it's Joseph's job to restore those. And so, with his kit, with his solvents, he, he takes and meticulously, two square inches at a time, works to remove years and years of dust and grime and filth so that the glory and the majesty of the original masterpiece can be revealed again. It's a tremendous responsibility that he takes very seriously. But I can only imagine how he must feel when he's done. And he rubs his eyes and steps back and looks at it and sees that art as it once was seen. And he can say, it's finished. I think that's what Jesus did. He restored masterpieces back to their original brilliance. His Tetelestai was a victory shout. His it is finished was not a whimper. Friends, our enemy Satan, he, he might accuse us of betrayal. He might accuse us of high treason against God. But Jesus triumphs over every accusation forevermore. And he, he declares, just like a merchant who says, paid in full. Just like a jailer who says the debt has been paid. Just like an artist who should step back and admire his workmanship, his masterpiece. He declares it with a single word, to Tetelestai. It is finished. Can we do anything less than follow him? I have been given the seventh and final statement from Jesus on the cross, which is found in Luke chapter 23, and I'll begin reading at verse 44. 
Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. When I was growing up as a young boy in Baltimore, Maryland, there was a popular commercial that would come on television. And it would say, you're in good hands with Allstate. And Allstate was an insurance company, and that was their model, that was their slogan. You're in good hands with Allstate. And I'm here to let you know, you may be in good hands with Allstate, but we're in better hands with the Almighty. You see, Allstate can only provide insurance, and that you must pay for. But our God provides assurance, and that is which he pays for. And he paid for us to have assurance with him through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived his entire life on earth with the assurance that his life, his times, were in the hands of the Father and not in the hands of men. There would be several times during his earthly ministry where men would try to harm Jesus, they would try to hurt Jesus, and the Bible says that he would pass through the midst of them. He would not be given into the hands of men until it was the ordained time for that to occur. And even when Jesus found himself given over into the hands of the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees, into the hands of the Romans, he would not enter into their hands without God's hand saying that now is the time and God's hand accompanied him through that moment. Jesus lived in the hands of God. And when we speak about the hands of God, we're talking about his power. We're talking about the might of God. We're talking about the authority of God. So Jesus lived in the power, the might, and the authority of the hand of God. And that's how we're to live our lives. But not only that, the hand of God also speaks of safety, security, and even belonging. And we know that God doesn't technically have hands. God is spirit. He, he doesn't have hands. But when he relates to human beings, he relates to us in ways that we can identify with him. And so for the sake of love, God has hands. And so when the Bible talks about the hand of the Lord, that is a way to encourage us because God knows that sometimes we need a hand. But all the time we need his hand especially if we're going to make it. And in Luke chapter 23, Jesus is speaking about the hands of God, that he is ready to commit himself into the hands of his father. Because in Luke 23, we see Jesus suffering in agony upon the cross. In Luke 23, we see Jesus dying as if he was a common criminal. We see Jesus completing his mission on earth, which was to 
seeking to save the lost, to lay down his life for sinners. We see Jesus crying out with a loud voice upon the cross. And we see Jesus also looking forward to the time when his spirit would be in the hands of God upon death. While dying on the cross, Jesus quoted from Psalm 31:15, which says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So Jesus, while on the cross, gasping for air, breathing his last breaths, quotes the word of God, quotes Psalm 31 verse 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. And look at how beautiful this is. You see the living word quoting the written word at the beginning of his ministry and now at the conclusion of his ministry. Because Jesus understood that if he was going to live the, the life that the Father has for him, it was going to be saturated and dependent upon the Word of God. And he did that as an example for you and me. So in the wilderness, he's quoting, it is written when Satan came to test him, to disqualify him before he even began his ministry. But Jesus stood in the wilderness by quoting the Word. And now we see the living Word, Jesus on the cross, quoting the Word of God before he passes. Brothers and sisters, what do you have stored up in your heart? especially before you die. I, I pray that there wouldn't be cussing coming out of your mouth or out of my mouth, but I pray that it would be the word of God coming out of our mouths. Psalm 31 verse 5 that Jesus quoted was used as a bedtime prayer for Jewish children. And so before they would go to bed, they would quote, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that's very much like the bedtime prayers that we were taught growing up, where we would say, now I lay me down to sleep, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. And so that was our prayer growing up in, in a similar way the Jewish children prayed this. And I see the tenderness in this moment that Jesus, the son, would talk to his father and quote a scripture that was used as a bedtime prayer for Jewish children. And here he is about to go to sleep, about to die. And he's saying to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus could trust the hands of the father in his most difficult hour of life. Jesus could entrust himself to the hands of the father during his most painful and harshest and darkest moment of life. And if Jesus could entrust himself to the hands of the Father, can't you? Can I? Can you think of any better hands to be in? Oh, as I bring this to a close, I want to let you know that the hands of the Father can be trusted. As Jesus was entrusting himself to the hands of the Father, that is a lesson for us in life and in death, and of course, before death. Because in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14 through 16, the Bible reads, But Zion, or the people of God, said, The Lord has forsaken me 
and my Lord has forgotten me. And someone may feel like that right now, that God has forgotten you. He's forsaken you. And, and you didn't need a virus for that to happen. You, you've just felt that way. Where is God? I see you blessing other people, but where are you in my life? But here's what God says. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. So God says, I will not forget you because your names are written on my palms. When I was in school and taking a test and I didn't know the answers, back then I would cheat a little bit and I would write some of the answers on my hand. But God's not cheating. God loves us. And he's written our names in the palm of his hands saying, I have not forgotten you. I, I've gotten eternal tattoos of your name in my hands. And it's into those hands that Jesus is committing himself before he is to die, saying, Father, I am ready. I am ready to come back into your hands. But what about you? Have you committed yourself to the hands of God? Or are you living your life in your own hands, in your own power, in your own strength? I'm here to let you know that that is not wise. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, that he gives to his sheep eternal life. And they are in the Father's hand. And no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. Because he and the Father are one. So are you in the hands of the Father? Are you in the hands of God? Do you have that confidence, that security, that safety of knowing that you're in the hands of God, even when the hands of men are crazy in your life. Because here's the good news. When you're in the hands of God, nothing gets to you until and unless it comes through his hands. And Jesus said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He lived his whole life that way. And now he's about to die and go to the hands of God. So as we conclude this Good Friday virtual worship experience, I, I need to ask you a question. Do you have eternal life? Have you accepted that gift that Jesus provides? The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And to receive the gift of salvation, to receive the gift of eternal life means that you're not trusting in yourself to be right with God or to go to heaven when you die or to live a pleasing life, a fulfilling life. No, you're trusting in God and you're receiving the gift and he transforms and changes your life one day, every day at a time. But there has to become, has to be a beginning point, a starting point where you say, today is the day of salvation for me. I trust in the Lamb of God. I trust in Jesus and I receive eternal life. And as Jesus says, you'll not only be in his hands, but you'll also be in the hands of the Father. So that whenever your day may come, where you breathe your last breath, you can say with confidence, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. I fear no death because Jesus tasted death for me. 
I thank you for sending your son. I thank you that he not only died, but he rose again from the grave. I put my faith in him. Save me, God. Put me in your hands. And if you've never prayed to receive Jesus, the gift of eternal life, pray with me. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for those who've listened across the airwaves. Thank you, Lord, for the seven last statements of Jesus. And we're so glad that he paid it all for us. And we're so glad that we can look with anticipation to Sunday morning, knowing that our Lord lives. And Lord, I pray that you would come and live in someone's life the way you have lived in my life for over 30 years now. And if you're listening, if you're watching, and you've never received the gift of eternal life, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, would you say, Jesus, come into my life and save me. Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I receive your gift of eternal life. And I thank you for placing me in your hands and in the hands of the Father, knowing that no one can remove me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. That's what Good Friday is all about. He died so that we could live. And if you made a choice to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, would you send the church a message, Strong Tower Bible Church? Would you put a message in my DM? Would you just let me know somehow, some way, so that I can rejoice with you and all the angels in heaven that are rejoicing? Let us know. Today was the day you became born all over again. And all of this is possible because of Good Friday. Now, as we conclude, we have one more song. And I pray that, again, you would listen to the words of this song and thank God and thank Jesus for his suffering upon Calvary. And that you will spend the evening and on into tomorrow anticipating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you. How deep the Father's love us, how vast beyond all measures, that He should give His only Son to
Come join us for a special Easter service with Strong Tower Bible Church this Sunday, April 12th at 10.30 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and strongtowerbiblechurch.com. <laughs>